From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. New windows or a new hot water heater could be in your future, even an electric car. What the federal climate bill might mean for Coloradans and their pocketbooks. Then, the new owners of the Denver Broncos. One of them, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, says the team is about more than sports. It's about bringing people together. The Broncos can be a source of unity, a source of common purpose, a source of common pride. Later, antiquities wrongly sold to the Denver Art Museum are back where they belong. We'll explore the illegal art trade and how items get returned to their rightful owners. It can take several years uh, to go through this kind of investigative work. It's a very slow and laborious process. Hi, I'm Dan Brooks, and I donated my car to CPR. The car I donated was a 1996 Ford Explorer that my son had been driving. When he went off to college, he didn't need the car, and it was old enough and duct taped together enough that the rest of us in the family didn't feel safe driving it, and it was time to give it to a good cause. All I had to do was fill out a form online. Didn't matter if the side door didn't open or the bumper was falling off. Somebody gave me a call, and they came and picked it up. Donate your car. It's easy at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Tomorrow, Congress is expected to pass the big new climate and health care bill. One way it's designed to fight climate change is by changing how you and I use energy in our homes. Nathan Iyer and Srinity Sampath Kumar have helped shape the legislation. They're with the Colorado-based Rocky Mountain Institute. It's a nonprofit that works to advance the world's transition to clean energy. And welcome to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to be here. Nathan, you've been advocating in Washington as this bill's come together. Big picture, what's in it for those of us who want to use it? Great question. So there is a bunch of measures that everyday households are going to be able to take advantage of pretty much off the bat. There's a lot of rebates for home electrification and home efficiency to reduce those energy bills. There's a lot of investments in your utility so that those utility bills that you get um, for every bit of energy that you consume are also going to be driven down pretty rapidly. There are incentives for electric vehicles, although there's a longer conversation as to which vehicles are going to actually get that credit. And there's also investments in not only home solar and storage, so putting, um, putting those panels on your home and those, those storage in your basement, um, but also in community solar, making sure that your, um, your neighbors, your city, your town can make major investments and the cheapest energy around, which is solar power. So let's break some of this down. Someone wants to make changes at home. How would the tax credits work exactly? Yeah, I can take that. So some of the tax credits, so on the residential energy efficiency tax credit, allows households to deduct up to 30% of the cost of upgrades to their homes from their taxes. So think insulation, electric appliances, and other measures you can use to weatherize your home. It also provides dollars to upgrade your breaker boxes, to you know, upgrade your additional electric load. And there is also a specific incentive and a notable exception that you get $2,000 in tax credit if you're installing a high efficiency heat pump water or space heater 
Besides that, there is another tax credit that goes by energy efficiency performance. So if you meet an energy star requirement, then you get $2,500. And if you go above and beyond that, you get $5,000. And what is really significant is it also has created this rebate program of an investment of up to $9 billion across the country. And the Colorado Energy Office will get some of this funding to, if they choose to apply to implement some of the programs. And this is really exciting because if you're a lower income resident or a household, you can get up to $14,000 for electric appliances. So heat pump, induction cooking, and it also covers panel upgrades and wiring costs, which is generally a huge barrier in homes that are old or are deteriorating. And it covers uh, up to $500 incentives for contractor, contractors installing these electrification upgrades. As we all know, it's been really hard to find contractors to do some of the work. So this is going to really spur that. And we also have additional incentive of of up to $8,000, again, for lower income household. And if you're a moderate income household, you can get up to $4,000 to, again, make some of these investments. And just briefly, explain what makes something like a heat pump more energy efficient. Yeah, definitely. One, it's an electric appliance, and it, it's just highly efficient and used for both water and space, heating and cooling. And many of us don't know this, but we already have a heat pump at home, which is our refrigerator. And it's just the savings that we are seeing, especially in Colorado, is mind blowing for us. For us, in, in terms of just like the upfront cost, it can save up to $2,700. And then the savings over the net present cost over 15 years is up to $2,900. We are seeing that Colorado, in Colorado, the energy burden for households are up to 30%. Mm. And installing a heat pump can actually bring your utility bills by around 2% down annually. So we really need these appliances to both like save on energy bills, but also make our reliance on fossil fuels lesser. And are these just tax credits or do you save money up front? Yeah, it's, it's a combination of both. So we have the tax credit incentives that your contractor can very easily help navigate. Then we also have rebate programs that the Colorado Energy Office can provide to you. But in addition to that, just purely on economics, you have a bunch of savings associated with installing a heat pump. Hmm. Does that mean I could be eligible for a tax credit each year? Could I plan out this year I'll get something, next year I'll get something, and I'll get money off my taxes each year? This is a great question. Yes, absolutely. So even though it's limited, many of these tax credits have a cap per year. You can apply for it year over year for different appliances or different energy efficiency upgrade. So this would be helping people do a lot of things to save energy. How much of an impact would this have on overall carbon emissions? Yeah. I can take that question. Um, for, for this bill, um, overall, three independent studies have come up um, with a, a essentially a very similar answer, which is the overall emissions in the United States um, will reduce 40% compared to 2005 levels. And wh why does everyone compare to 2005 levels? That was kind of the peak of U.S. emissions. Another way to think about this bill is it doubles the rate of decarbonization. As you probably know, there's a lot of states like Colorado that are moving pretty quickly. Um, there's a lot of very cheap technologies, solar, wind, increasingly EVs that are naturally driving down the emissions rate. This bill doubles 
that rate of emissions reductions and is equivalent to approximately up to a billion tons of CO2 uh, emissions per year um, by the end of 2030. I want to ask just something I'm curious about. Um, one change people could make would be to transition from a gas to an electric stove. I didn't know until recently that electric stoves are not only healthier for the planet, but they're healthier for people indoors. Can you just explain why? Yeah, so one of the study we released, and there are several new studies that are coming out almost on a weekly basis that talks about the impacts of having gas stoves at homes. One thing, one study essentially found out that home, children in home with gas stoves are at a risk of asthma four times higher. And so it's really, really harmful because of the nitrous oxide emissions that come out of gas stoves burning in homes, especially if you don't have a good vent in homes, which many of the older building stock don't, then it's really problematic just in terms of the pollution and health burden that it brings. And which is also why it's exciting that there are specific provisions in the bill that acknowledges like induction stoves and provide rebates and incentives for it. And Serenity, what if I rent or live in public housing? Can I get access to this money to help me get a newer, more efficient appliance systems in my house that would save energy? Absolutely. So many of these rebate programs are if you're in a low in a lower income housing and you're a resident that earns uh, anywhere between or below 100 percent AMI, even 150 percent area median income in Colorado, then you are absolutely eligible to make some of these upgrades within your home. And besides all of this, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, also known as HUD, will receive over over a billion to provide grants and loans. And they have a dedicated part of funding that will allow for affordable housing providers and households to really understand their energy and water use within their pro properties to even help inform, make those decisions. Nathan, how soon will these things be available to homeowners and landlords? That's a great question. So some of these credits, these tax credits, are going to be available immediately, including some of the efficiency rebates that Serenity mentioned. For some of the low-income programs, um, the state actually has to apply for these funds. And so it could take um, several months for the application to go through and several more um, for those funds to start flowing. So some credits available immediately, um, and those are going to be your, your average tax credits, um, and those typically are not capped, so you can take advantage of them for the full 10 years. For the grant programs, those are going to require applications, and those funds will eventually run out. And so it's very important that the state has a, has a strong plan as to where these funds go, making sure that it's taking the energy burden off of the most vulnerable citizens in Colorado. Let's talk about solar. Nathan, what's in the climate legislation for people who want to convert to solar? There's a lot in here for, uh, for solar. So um, typically we've had a, a residential solar tax credit that's been in existence um, for um, many, many years. Um, typically those, those um, kind of come on and off in the sense that you get a 30% tax credit, so 30% off the top of, of your project. Um, and then over time, it kind of declines and we're, we're in that declining zone. So it's 26% now, and then it drops off to zero um, very soon. What this credit does is it extends that solar tax credit for the next 10 years. So you're going to get that full 30% um, for 10 years. 
And um, what that will do is it will reduce your energy bills because um, as you probably know, solar power has been coming down in price very, very dramatically over the past 10 years. Um, and it also makes it so that if you do decide to have a fully electrified life, if you decide to go for the heat pump, to go for the electric stove, to go for the electric car, the payback period of those solar panels on your house actually come down pretty dramatically. It could be um, around four years if you get a good installer um, for a payback period for solar on your home. So after that four years, the energy produced on your roof is essentially for free. And my family has taken advantage of these um, um, these tax credits earlier on. And um, it is it is a really incredible feeling um, looking at your app and seeing, wow, the entirety of my home is being powered just by the sunlight bouncing off my roof. And uh, it's, it's a really powerful feeling. And it's also a powerful um, engine for savings for a lot of families. You've mentioned electric cars. There's been a lot of negotiation around the way the electric car incentives are written into the climate bill. There are some made in America provisions that would mean few electric cars qualify for tax incentives right away. How exactly does this bill give more money to people? And could this end up making it harder to buy an electric car? That's a great question. And it is a it is a active debate right now. Um, everyone is scrambling to find an answer here. And um, right now, there are certain electric vehicles that have the current tax credit that will no longer get that tax credit um, once, once the bill is signed. And I'm thinking mostly about um, certain Korean brands um, that haven't quite hit their electric vehicle cap. For, for a long time, there's been a 200,000 vehicle cap for a lot of these manufacturers. So you're not going to get this credit um, or the old credit for Tesla um, and for GM and increasingly Ford. Um, so that cap is going to be lifted. So a lot of vehicles technically would be eligible. Then, as you mentioned, there is this really strict made in America cap. And this is something that Senator Manchin very specifically negotiated as the terms for having an EV tax credit at all. And what that cap says is that um, starting next year, uh, 50% of all of the manufacturing has to happen in North America and 40% of all the critical minerals and all the processing has to happen in nations that are free trade agreements are allies essentially. And um, the, the challenge there is that um, in a lot of these supply chains, 90 to hundred percent of all of these materials are processed in China. And so what this bill requires is that us auto manufacturers, start building these deep supply chains in the United States. And a lot of the reason why this, this came to be is because Senator Manchin and a lot of other senators looked to the Russia crisis and saw that a big geopolitical crisis can cut you off from the key materials you need in order to, to run your energy economy. And so I think there was a lot of fear in Congress that the same thing would happen for the electric vehicles. So what does this mean for consumers? Um, it's pretty simple. Um, for the first one to three years, you're not going to see a lot of vehicles off the lot. Only the most made in America brands, period, are going to have these credits. And even those will only have a couple vehicles that qualify. That being said, um, consumers will see the cost of EVs across the board coming down fairly dramatically because there is a second credit negotiated in the bill makes it a lot cheaper to build these batteries in the United States, a direct manufacturing tax credit. So the cost of EVs and gas vehicles to produce 
for these auto manufacturers is about the same starting next year, thanks to these manufacturing credits. But that big, juicy um, rebate that you get off the top of the, the sticker price of your vehicle will probably not see until 2025 at the earliest for most vehicles. Hmm. Let me ask a big picture question since we're talking so much about converting to electric. The grid isn't always green. For example, some electricity comes from coal. Is that a concern at all? So one thing that's really important to realize about electric vehicles is that the energy efficiency of that electric motor is about 90%. It's, it's super efficient vehicles. Um, and you know when you're burning gas in your gas vehicle, the efficiency of that is about 30%. A lot of it's lost as heat, as anyone who's you know, touched the, um, touch the hood of a car after being run real hard. So um, there's a lot of energy efficiency savings off the bat that makes it so that the average grid, so if you're, if you're charging it um, off the grid, you don't have solar, you don't really, you're not in a really special area, you're already saving emissions because it's just so much more efficient to, um, to run an electric vehicle than a gas vehicle. And then over time, as you know, in Colorado, there's a very aggressive um, clean energy standard that will require investment in very cheap solar and wind, which will drive the emissions on the grid down over time. So even if the grid's a little dirtier when you first buy your EV, by you know year 10, 11, 12 of operation, um, that, that those grid emissions will have come down substantially. So um, if you look at the life cycle, you're actually saving a lot of emissions by purchasing EVs even to this day. And how quickly and easy will it be for someone to access all of this money? So it will be fairly easy for most folks to, to access many of these rebates. As I mentioned before, there are certain grant programs um, that still have some implementation to do. And um, a lot of the contractors, a lot of the uh, retailers, a lot of the um, aggregators of these investments um, for the home We'll do a lot of the upfront work to make sure that consumers can get access to this credit. Um, there's a ton of services out there to kind of make sure that everyone's getting the credits that they need. Um, and then the state energy office is going to play a big role to make sure that the grant money um, is being put in the hands of consumers. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Nathan Iyer and Srinity Sampath Kumar are with the Rocky Mountain Institute. They've been helping shape the green energy provisions and the new Inflation Reduction Act. It's expected to pass Congress tomorrow. When we come back, we'll meet the new owners of the Denver Broncos. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Between Copper Mountain and Leadville, more than 11,300 feet above sea level, the town of Climax once stood. It was home to the most financially successful business during the Great Depression. It helped the Allies win World War II, and ultimately, it just disappeared. The reason? Molybdenum. When prospectors discovered the metallic element near the top of Fremont Pass, there wasn't much use for it. But demand increased during World War I, since molybdenum makes some of the strongest alloyed steel. A town sprouted up around the mine, which by World War II became the source for all the molybdenum the Allies needed for things like armor plating. Operations grew until it became the largest underground mine in the world, and the town above it became uninhabitable. Today, the town is gone, but the mine remains, and roughly 500 million pounds of molybdenum a Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Dazzle Jazz in Denver. 
the new owners of the Denver Broncos introduced themselves to Broncos Nation Wednesday afternoon. The Walton Penner Ownership Group bought the team for a record $4.6 billion. Rob Walton leads the group made up of six people. He began by acknowledging former owner Pat Bolin. Pat Bolin built a great legacy and a record of winning and championships. We plan to do everything we can to build on the championship tradition of this great organization. We're thrilled, thrilled to be a part of the Broncos. Simply put, it's an honor to steward this historic franchise. Our number one priority is putting a winning team on the field to win Super Bowls for Broncos country. Rob Walton has an estimated net worth of about $60 billion. It makes him the wealthiest owner in the NFL. He could have bought the team outright. Instead, he formed a group to align with the league's goal to achieve ownership diversity. That includes Melody Hobson, who's black. She's co-CEO of Ariel Investments. She's also the chair of the board of Starbucks and is director of J.P. Morgan Chase. It is such an honor and a privilege to be an owner of this remarkable organization. It really, it is overwhelming to even think about. The moment is humbling and it's historical, and yet I feel at home. I'm very excited to be here. As someone once wrote, if you are going to exceed your wildest expectations, your wildest dreams, you have to start with some pretty wild dreams, and this is certainly in that category. It is a joy to partner with other members of this ownership group, group, people that I've admired for a very long time. I also want to acknowledge the bond that I feel with the players who, like me, have had to overcome a lot in their lives. And I know the amount of focus and discipline that it has taken for them to get here. I also know all of the people, the family at home, the community that they are responsible for and that they really understand how much that community wants to see them win and how much they want to win for that community. I feel a bond with them and I'm really, really happy to be a part of the organization to be and to stand with them. That's Melody Hobson. She's part of the Broncos' new ownership group. Hobson also spoke about Lewis Hamilton. He's a co-owner as well, but couldn't be in Colorado for the news conference. Hamilton is a seven-time Formula One racing champion. Lewis is my chosen little brother. I, As soon as this opportunity came up, I started off by saying, you have to have Lewis. I've met Lewis in his uh, rookie season as an F1 uh, driver, and we bonded over time. Uh, As you many know, he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth, and I call him Sir Little Brother as a result of that. He is the GOAT in his field, the greatest of all time, and he has this winning mentality, not just on the track, but in everything that he does. He cares deeply about people, about our planet, and as the first and only in his sport, about diversity, equity, and and inclusion. Former U.S. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice is the third person of color on the ownership group. Rice partly grew up in Denver and graduated from the University of Denver. I'm just thrilled to be a part of this great Denver Broncos organization for a couple of reasons. One is that you have to understand how much I love football. My dad was a football coach when I was born. I was supposed to be his all-American linebacker. Uh, When he got a girl, he decided to teach her about the sport instead. And even though my father's gone to the Lord, I have to think that today he's thinking, 
she finally got a really important job. <laughs> I want to say, too, that it's great to be back in Denver. I came to Denver for the first time as a six-year-old. When my family came to, for my parents to go to graduate school, we returned to live here when I was 12 years old. I was taught by the Sisters of Loretta at St. Mary's Academy, on to the University of Denver twice for my undergraduate degree and my PhD. And during that period of time, everybody who lived here had to know what the Broncos mean to this community. I'm a part of the Orange Course generation, where you'd go into any grocery store or any restaurant, and there were all of those Orange Crush cans piled up with Reuben Carter or Louis Wright peering over them. And of course, the tradition would continue with the great Stanford man, John Elway, and Peyton Manning and others. This is a great tradition, a great heritage of winning. But the goal now is to build on that heritage and that tradition to continue it in a way that makes for a bright future. We're also dedicated to this community, to this wonderful place called Denver, Colorado. And I have to say, a lot of places around Denver that love the Broncos. Because, you know, in days when communities are ripped apart by so much, the football team, like the Broncos, can be a source of unity, a source of common purpose, a source of common pride. And I very much look forward to being a part again of this great Denver community and all that the Broncos mean to it. That's former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, who's now a part owner of the Denver Broncos. Rob Walton's daughter, Carrie Walton Penner, and her husband, Greg Penner, round out the ownership group. Greg Penner is the chairman of Walmart. He will be the new CEO of the Broncos. Carrie Walton Penner has been involved in the Walton Family Foundation. Across our ownership group, we support the shared vision, strategy, and needs of the organization. We'll draw on the extraordinary depth of our partners to help the Broncos succeed on the field, in the NFL, and across our community. We're new to the sports business, um, so this will be a, a, a great family endeavor for us, but also a significant learning opportunity. And we take that on um, fully and are really excited about um, the opportunity to learn and the challenges uh, in, in terms of really getting up to speed quickly. Um, we're committed fully to making sure that the Denver Broncos is the best team to play for, to work for, and to cheer for. Following in the footsteps of Pat Bolin and Joe Ellis is no small feat. Their leadership has meant success on the field, impact in the community, and of course, Super Bowl championships. Joe, I'm really glad that you're going to be available to us as an advisor. Uh, we're going to rely on you and, and call on you, and it's going to be uh, very helpful to us. I'm also looking forward to working with George Payton, one of the sharpest GMs in the business, and uh, he's got a terrific vision for the franchise here. And of course, uh, Nathaniel Hackett, Coach Hackett is here as well, a dynamic up-and-coming head coach. These pieces that we've got in place are, have just brought an incredible energy to the building, and uh, we can't wait to get started. Our Broncos fans have high expectations. Uh, we know that, and we embrace it. We believe that a winning team and organization require the right people, 
high expectations, the necessary resources, and then accountability. We're committed to that, and we're going to draw on this diverse ownership group to succeed. Greg Penner, the new CEO of the Denver Broncos. Before him, we heard from Kerry Walton-Penner, who will also be part of the day-to-day operations. The NFL finalized the sale of the team on Tuesday. The Broncos' first preseason game is Saturday against the Dallas Cowboys. When we come back, working to make sure stolen art and artifacts are returned to their owners. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Matters is live in Grand Junction for the next Turn the Page, a conversation with nature and adventure writer Craig Childs. His latest book contemplates the beauty and meaning of rock art on the caves, canyons, and cliffs of the Colorado Plateau. When you see images painted or pecked on stone, you're seeing the original inhabitants. And when you start looking around, you realize they're everywhere. Pick up a copy of Tracing Time and join Colorado Matters September 6th in Grand Junction. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. Ancient Cambodian artifacts that were sold to the Denver Art Museum using false documents were returned this week. U.S. officials handed the four antiquities over to Cambodia at a ceremony in New York City Monday. Authorities say the items were sold to the art museum by Douglas Latchford after they were stolen. Latchford died before he could stand trial for his connections to the theft of more than 30 such artifacts. Returning art to its original and rightful owners is a big topic these days. It's something associate history professor at the University of Denver, Elizabeth Campbell, has dedicated a career to. She directs DU's Center for Art Collection Ethics. She spoke with Ryan Warner back in October. It was right after a media investigation known as the Pandora Papers highlighted the Latchford case. So the Pandora Papers is an investigation by the Washington Post and other outlets involving millions of documents connected to an offshore financial system. And it found what the Post calls two secret offshore trusts that an indicted art dealer, Douglas Latchford, used to hold money and ancient relics, uh, including some believed to be looted. In this case, we're talking about Cambodian antiquities, Now, you're not directly connected to this, but how often do you hear about this kind of case in the art world? This kind of case is actually more common than you might think. You might remember that this same consortium of journalists, so it's the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, also revealed the Panama Papers a few years ago. And so this was another study of tax havens. And that disclosure also showed that the wealthy and powerful around the world were using art to shield assets. And they hide these works of art in storage facilities, in locations that have these kinds of tax havens, in Freeports, there's a large uh, Freeport in Geneva mm. that uh, also is known to be uh, a place where these individuals store works of art. So we see it come out in the news headlines occasionally, but sadly, it is a persistent problem that is nothing new. Now, using art and antiquities to uh, mass value indicates that there is a market for these items. There is some place you could sell them, presumably, even though their provenance is questionable, right? Yes, that's correct. And with antiquities, 
this is a big problem because it's it's often difficult to track down the provenance. If you think about the difference between an antiquity, so say there's a religious relic hmm. uh, that may be you know, a thousand years old and is not going to have the kind of markings that you would see on, for example, a 19th century painting that might have dealer stamps or custom stamps. Uh, there's more evidence on the back of a painting frame than what one can find on antiquities. So this makes it very difficult and um, time-consuming, laborious to, to do this kind of research. These kinds of items can slip past customs officials. And so there is a market for them and it, it makes them really a, a, a target for trafficking. For its part, the Denver Art Museum tells us that it contacted the Cambodian government in 2019 about the items in question. So the Washington Post report and this consortium, as you say, I suppose sheds further light on the issue. I know you've collaborated with the Denver Art Museum on ethics and art in the past. Can you shed light on the long road of repatriation? I mean, if this began in 2019... It shows just how slowly the gears can turn. Well, and actually, that doesn't sound like a very long time to me. And I'm not a staff member of the, the Denver Art Museum. But if you look at this kind of art restitution or repatriation case, it can take uh, several years uh, to go through this kind of investigative work. As I mentioned, it's a very slow and laborious process. And part of the problem when these works end up at museums Provenance research or ownership research, tracing an object's history, is often an area that museums have not invested in enough. Mm. Uh, and so that means that they tend to be short-staffed. And if you think about an encyclopedic museum, so some of the big museums that are involved with this case, the British Museum, Metropolitan Museum of Art, we call these encyclopedic museums, they need to be doing provenance research on a wide range of items, some that may have been looted by the Nazis, African items, Native American items, and antiquities. Those are really the main areas. And in each of those categories, each object can be a very time-consuming case. So in this instance, the, the Denver Art Museum is doing the right thing by carrying out that research by proactively connecting with the Cambodian government. You might remember they did repatriate a statue to Cambodia in 2016. Oh, yeah. That is the right thing to do right now. But it also requires investments. And so you're saying that museums in this regard are understaffed. Is it also true that there is a dearth of people who can do this kind of work? I mean, I, I wonder how easy it is to consult with someone who does this. Right, that's true. And that's actually um, part of our mission I'm, as I'm the director of the Center for Art Collection Ethics at right. the University of Denver. And part of our educational mission is to train uh, graduate students and emerging professionals to carry out this kind of provenance research. It's an area that has not yet been professionalized. And so it's often contract work, short-term uh, employment. And we're trying to play a role in, in changing that. But you're, you're right. Um, there is right now, um, I think there, there's, a po there's a population that is willing and eager to do this work, but there are often not fully funded positions at museums. It's very rare for a, for a museum to have a full-time provenance research position. Uh, and so it's an area where museums need to be 
making this investment. And it's, it's an excellent opportunity for those who want to support museums to provide that support for provenance research at mm. the museums um, that they that they love. I mean, that's fascinating. It's an action item that you as a museum member or uh, higher up the economic chain, a philanthropist could demand. Now, if and this is going to show my naivete, but let's say the Denver Art Museum paid, I don't know, $250,000 or something for a relic. Then it turns out that that relic ought to be ethically repatriated. Does insurance cover that or do they just lose that investment? Most institutions do have insurance for that, that okay. can cover that kind of loss. Yes. Hmm. Okay. Uh, they, yes. Now you've been doing, as you say, this kind of training for, gosh, students, museum professionals, people who work at auction houses. I mean, I suppose you're really trying to train the front line, the, the people who would see this stuff. Yes. Our mission is to change the culture in museums, auction houses, all of those involved in the art world, so that this rising generation of curators who will eventually then go on to be museum directors, so that they have ethics front and center in their minds, and that they prioritize provenance research. And for those who are interested in carrying out that research, actually giving them the skills to do it. And even you know, we'll have students who come through our program who may not go on to become provenance researchers. And that may it's just not a staff position that mm -hmm. is available in many museums. But what we're doing is teaching them about why it's so important, why these ethical standards really need to be adhered to. And eventually we're going to expand our offerings so that people can see, you know, how there, there may be similar ethical dilemmas regarding Native American items or African items or antiquities, but all of those categories come with their own dilemmas and circumstances that museum professionals need to be aware of. Is it possible that when a museum does this kind of work and they find that something ought to be a return to its rightful owner, that the owner says, thank you, keep it? Yes. And in fact, you know, there are examples of museums proactively reaching out to owners. And, you know, for example, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston has engaged in settlements with families whose ancestors had owned art that was looted by the Nazis. And so they have proactively initiated settlements. There are also some circumstances in which, for example, a museum might hold Native American items and with research and also consultations with tribes, tribal members might determine they cannot properly preserve, conserve uh, the items. And so, for example, the, I know the Denver Art Museum also has made arrangements with tribes that they will conserve items uh, according to the wishes of the tribes mm. and give tribal members access uh, when they would like to perform religious ceremonies. Um, and so in some cases, the museum can be the proper place, but it has to be done with the consent of the community from which the object came. But I have to think that all of that is then added to the narrative of the item and can be an opportunity to educate someone who sees it at that museum. Yes, yeah. yes. And yeah, in that case of Native American items, some of them really should not even be seen by the public. I mean, okay. they are really considered um, ancestors and it's not even appropriate for them to be on display. 
but you raise an interesting point because what some museums are doing now is they're showing that these objects have histories, they have biographies, and it is fascinating to look at a painting and not just look at its aesthetic beauty, but to also track where it has traveled across continents and oceans and how did it end up at this particular museum in Denver. And uh, what curators and museum staff are finding is that the public really is interested in that story. And it just, it broadens your whole view of art and the meaning of an object. So that is, uh, I think it's, it's a new exciting way for objects to be displayed. Are we always talking about paintings and, you know, old sculptures? Are we also talking about more everyday items, hairbrushes, mirrors? I don't know. Yes, I've worked with a, a local claimant, Nina McGahee. So her ancestor had owned um, more of an antique shop in Germany. And just in, in recent years, through provenance research uh, carried out by an expert named Micah Hopp and an auction house owner, Katrin Stoll, um, these women have worked together to trace the history of items that were looted from Nina McGahee's family. And these are not high value masterpieces. These are more everyday objects. Mm. But thanks to records that Micah Hupp was able to research, the family was able to get these items back. And speaking with her, you understand the value of getting a, a plaque, um, a simple picture, uh, just a, a decorative item that wouldn't have a lot of value and you would never see on a, a museum display, but holds tremendous value for the family. They're getting a tangible connection to their family and to their past that is very meaningful. I, I want to wade into some uncomfortable territory. World history is one of plundering and conquest in many ways, of, of, you know, one people, one culture going in and dominating another one. How, how far should folks in your field peel back the onion? How many civilizations, generations, epics? Do you know what I mean? You know, it is an interesting question. Um, I'd say that, you know, the institutions need to make a start in areas where it is well known that the provenance research must be done. And so what we see happening is that those areas become topics of focus successively. And so the concern with Native American items um, actually began with a federal law in 1990. Is that NAGPRA? Uh, that's the NAGPRA, NAGPRA yeah. law. Yes. And then concern for Nazi era art, then garnered more attention later in the 1990s. You know that with the Black Lives Matter movement, there has been more attention recently to African items. Uh, so, and then we have this scandal that has come out with antiquities. So there are a lot of different categories of art that we're talking about, but it is the responsibility of museums to respond when there are known injustices and they need to be able to respond to communities that want this kind of research to be done. And so given the fact that it can affect so many different items, it's just a further argument to invest in provenance research because it does touch so many different communities around the world. And these demands are going to keep coming and the, the, the requests are going to keep expanding. So it's just another reason to invest in provenance research. Well, and I think what I hear you saying is that desire and craving on behalf of a particular people, that matters. When someone comes forward 
that's especially when you listen uh, yes. and that that can help drive some of these decisions. Otherwise, it might feel totally overwhelming about where to begin. Elizabeth, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Elizabeth Campbell is an associate history professor at the University of Denver. She directs DU's Center for Art Collection Ethics. She spoke with Ryan Warner in October. Four stolen artifacts that were sold to the Denver Art Museum using false documents were returned this week to their rightful home in Cambodia. When we come back, we visit the sky space. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Finding your way by not fitting in. That's what worked for Colorado filmmaker Denise Soler Cox. I used to tell myself, I'm going to do something really great with my life one day. And all of this that's happening, everything, that it would all lead to something amazing. The latest episode of the new CPR podcast, Quien Are We?, everywhere you listen and in the Colorado Public Radio app. There's a new piece of outdoor art near the base of Pikes Peak. It's nestled among pine trees on a steep hillside. KRCC's Shauna Lewis went to Green Mountain Falls to check out the latest sky space installation by artist James Terrell. The windowless box-like structure is covered in gray stone and clings to a steep forested slope overlooking the small town. There's a half-mile hike to get to it, part of what's called the Sky Space Pilgrimage. Next, it shoes off to step onto the glossy marble floor inside the stone cube. The curved white ceiling has a large square opening in the middle. That's the oculus. Viewers take seats on smooth wooden benches lining the walls. Sunset begins. Colored light illuminates the ceiling with shifting hues. Cobalt, olive, flame orange, lilac, lemon, neon pink. Through the oculus, the color of the sky appears to change too. The hour-long experience ends, and the sky space pilgrims leave the silent chamber. Well, I'm still a little speechless. I don't know quite how to, <laughs> how to encapsulate what the last hour was, but it was pretty amazing. I think just the, the whole concept that the, a simple patch of, of a night sky can become a, a multifaceted work of art, you know, through your optic nerves and your brain. It's just kind of amazing. It's meditative. I felt like I had to remind myself that I am truly looking at the sky unobstructed because there were colors that just made you think you were in a different place. And sometimes as if the actual sky was inside the room on a flat two-dimensional plane. That was Kevin Landis, Sam Minetti, and Coley Hines, all of Colorado Springs. Local project manager Jesse Stroop worked to make Terrell's vision a reality. The 79-year-old artist hasn't been able to visit the site. One of the things that took us weeks and weeks of extra work to do was to create this knife edge around the oculus. And, and getting me to understand and the construction crew to understand that this knife edge being the, the width of a nickel was not good enough. It needed to be finer than that of a ballpoint pen. They honed the metal roof to perfection. And so literally my construction foreman cut his arm on this knife edge that we created because it was critically important to James Terrell and to the sky space that that be literally like a knife edge so that it's not creating a shadow or reflecting light. That edge creates an otherworldly feeling 
as if you're looking through a portal into the depths of another dimension. I feel like I'm part of the entire universe inside of the sky space, but it's such a small space that's also expansive at the same time. That's Scott Levy, the executive director of Greenbox, the arts organization that manages this sky space. He sees unlimited possibilities for it. Could we have concerts in there? Could we have meditation sessions and activate the sky space, not just via James Terrell's artwork, but using the art as the catalyst for other programming? Reservations are required, which helps control the number of people coming to the sky space. Local business owners Ken and Melissa Nord say it'll draw visitors. Particularly, we'll end up in our store shopping and walking around Green Mountain Falls and enjoying the beauty and maybe even taking a hike and maybe stay a few days. This is a permanent thing, so I think it will help year-round rather than just being uh, coming for the summer and then it's shut down for the rest of the year. I think our town is it's being discovered. There are more than 80 Terrell sky spaces around the world, but the Green Mountain Falls sky space is one of a handful that offers a closed Oculus show along with the open sunrise and sunset shows. So it'll operate year-round, but the weather may affect the schedule. Shauna Lewis, KRCC News. BDT Stage has been a dinner theater fixture in Boulder since it was founded in 1977. Now the group's home has been sold, and this is shaping up to be its final season. CPR's Eden Lane reports. Formerly called Boulder's Dinner Theater, BDT Stage has a proud 44-year history of successful shows and crowd-pleasing dinners. Recently, longtime producing artistic director Michael J. Duran stepped down and Seamus McDonough took the helm. My father was the original employee in the building in 1977, so I have literally, I was born here in 1985 and I started Working here in 1999, I have been here ever since. Like many businesses, BDT Stage had to make some tough adjustments to survive the impact of COVID shutdowns and faced new realities when it reopened, including moving where their sets were created. So we had to make some hard decisions. We've had to get rid of the shop. It was a rented space, and so that was, you know, money that we just didn't have. So we had to outsource everything that we're doing for scenically. All the difficult decisions and changing rehearsal schedules allowed BDT Stage to program a season with most of the regular audience favorite performers. But we did also have to change up what our rehearsal schedule was. We used to be rehearsing during the day and doing shows at night. Well, people have day jobs now. So we had to switch up things to be rehearsing at night on off nights where we're not having shows. When the owners announced the sale of the building, they were able to plan for a final year for BDT Stage including this summer's family show, The SpongeBob Musical. It's a super fun show for kids because they know the characters. Even people who are my age know the characters. The cartoon came out in 1999. The songs are all written by a list of major music stars. Yeah, we have John Legend, Panic at the Disco, Plain White Tees, Cindy Lauper, Aerosmith. The list goes, I mean, every single one is a pop song. As of right now, McDonough says nothing has changed with the season and there isn't a hard closing date, but they aren't planning on reopening at a different location. That's what we want to make sure of with this, with us going out is absolutely just a celebratory thing and not something sad. You know, it's that, I think it's a Winnie the Pooh adage, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happens. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. The SpongeBob musical plays at BDT stage through August 21st.
Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is CPR News and KRCC.